Chad and Jay Mansbridge here, lead pastors of Bayside Church International, based here on the south coast of South Australia. Our great passion as a church is to help people to know Jesus and to demonstrate His love, truth and life in everything that we do. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning. Yes, they are shiny white shoes, thank you for noticing. 40 now, so my wife does shop for me. I said, honey, button shirt, t-shirt this morning. She goes, you're 40 now, you have to go with t-shirts. Try to look younger. I didn't actually say that. I could always just shave, that'd help. Anyway. That's right, that's right. Very good morning. Um, three, no, Seven. Two, two points, two, two, two admissions of, of my um, neglect as a pastor, and I can only do two because I would be here the whole day if, if I went through the whole list, look at that. That's the, yeah, that's the third one. Fortunately, it just takes off the editor's notes and they're not, you know, they're not as great. Um, <clears throat> Communication is really important to us as a church, as a family, as a friendship. Communication is key. And in just two areas of information distribution in the last uh, month or so and then year or two, uh, a few things that uh, I've neglected and then am looking to work on. Since we redid the auditorium in here with new carpet and whatever. <clears throat> oh, sorry, let me start. Historically, up the side wall up there for years, we've had uh, an information table with Bayside-specific stuff and then a shelf full of outside Bayside, beyond Bayside. The church is flipping enormous and there's heaps of stuff going on. Here's an information shelf if you want to know. We have plenty of stuff passed through our letterbox and emails and Facebook threads on events and sessions and seminars that go around the place. If we were to promote them, everyone that comes through town, you'd have nothing but 30 minutes of announcements. And as good as Rachel is, I wouldn't want to do that to you. And so what we've always had is a, a, a stand of Bayside stuff and then general stuff. And since we've redone things in here uh, and we've got camera situations going, we're yet to sort of come to a system where we can still do that. So if you've wondered where some of that info's gone, I'm just letting you know we're still considering and looking at things. I take a long time to make decisions sometime and, and uh, that's just how it goes. But it, may, it, it does uh, remind me that there's also another way that we stay in touch on other issues um, rather than upfront announcements all the time. And uh, Malcolm uh, and others have created an in-house Facebook page that is specific to us as a family. And so some of you on there have seen and heard of some of the events, like Franklin Graham's here this week, for example, in Adelaide. I think some of you might be, might be going to that. Alan Meyer, a friend of ours, is um, at Glorified Church at Mount Barker in a few weeks' time doing a financial seminar that's going. So these are you know, a number of the examples of things that are happening around the place. Uh, if you're not currently on our fa Bayside Family Facebook, which is more of an in-house, behind-the-scenes communication, uh, see Malcolm uh, just to make sure... G'day, Mal and uh, he'll make sure you're, you've been added to that. And in the meantime, we'll work out exactly what we want to do uh, with that whole situation. The other thing that I've neglected, it's my fault, in the last year or two, besides my garden this season, is um, 
is in communicating or distributing information for new people to our church family. Historically, um, over as we've grown or as people have come to our church and maybe about the three to six month mark when we know, you know these people are really believing like this is their church family uh, we'd have some of our key leaders open their home we'd have a dinner sit around a table and give a bit of a history of Bayside talk about a few of the things that happen behind the scenes the why we do things what we do uh, how we go about things that may be unique to other churches open up to Q&A etc etc and we've sort of grown out of the ability to do that around a dining room table with new folk. We haven't gone out of it, but if we did, we'd be doing it every few weeks, and it's just a bit too much of a commitment. So in the last year or two, we've actually done nothing, and a number of you who have joined our church family uh, in the last year or two uh, haven't sort of had that opportunity of kind of an information session, (laughs) dare I say, where Chad and Jay and a few of our key leaders can be there and talk about uh, basically some of the distinctives of our church family. And we're working on that right now, a new sort of format Uh, to go with that and part of uh, thinking through that is us putting together an essential media pack all right and uh, this is what got me thinking about today I'm I'm leading to somewhere as always happens Uh, and it is a Uh, (coughs) three-pointer and so what we're going to do is put uh, thought it'd be great to put together an essential media pack here are four or five key messages that anyone who calls Bayside their home really should hear. You really need to hear that message. You really need to have an understanding of that teaching. Listen, here's the recordings, get that into you. And so we're uh, sort of asking around and in the process of compiling that as well as working out how we do information sessions into the future. And I say that to segue into this. One of the key messages or teachings that kind of has distinguished us or kind of is unique to us as a church family, is something that God showed me, I shared with our, in our pre-service prayer meeting today, there's a difference between second-hand revelation and stuff that God has told you, okay? We might learn that lesson from Adam and Eve, possibly. Uh, Eve did not hear God say, thou shalt not eat the fruit, she heard Adam tell her, and that may have been the reason that she was the weak link in that situation, she had a second-hand knowledge of an original statement. There's nothing like you hearing God for yourself. And having been in church life basically all my life, I've heard hundreds if not thousands of hours of Bible teaching, yet the things that have stuck with me are the ones that I've heard God speak to me on my own. The, the, the take-home things, and I've, I, we just heard maybe a dozen people share before the service certain truths like that, that this is mine. I own this on my own because I remember the day God spoke this to me. And one of those messages for me that I've kind of become known for was the teaching on the three major covenants throughout history. It's something that essentially God revealed to me 10 years ago during a series we were doing on the book of Galatians and God just put three things into place, a three-point structure that helped me not only understand Galatians but helped me to understand the whole Bible in this particular grid. It's a way of reading the Bible and understanding how it works together. A few months after that series, I got pneumonia and I thought, well, stuff this. I'm going to use this as an opportunity uh, to do something constructive. I'm lying in bed all day. Stuff this, not appropriate. Huh? Oh, yeah, that. Okay. Good. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, keep going. Okay. Um, you're putting me off in the front row, darling. 
I'm thinking of things I shouldn't be thinking. Um, and anyway, I was in bed and sick as a dog and I thought, I'm going to write, a friend of mine encouraged me to write out some of that teaching because he'd heard me preach on it for a book of his that he was putting together. Would you contribute to a chapter of this book with that three covenant teaching? And I wrote that out, he read it and he said, Chad, you've got to do your own thing, that's its own book. And out of that came a book we now call He Qualifies You. This week in Valentine's Day marked the ninth anniversary of its release that came up on my feed you know what I mean, uh, this week. And it occurred to me that it's been probably close to six or seven years since I've actually taught that message here. Probably the last time was at one of our conferences when Andrew Womack was here from Texas. Uh, Andrew Womack and Rob Rufus and I spoke at a conference called Glorious Grace. I delivered that message there probably the last time, which means a good half or so of our church family have never heard that core key message. And I thought it was worth looking at today. So I'm going to do my best to not have any notes. The page that I'd like you to turn to, because we always have to start with Scripture, is Philippians 3, the torn one. Okay, so just look for the torn page in your Bible. Maybe I've preached it so many times that, uh, that this page is torn. There it is. Okay, I'm just going to get into it. You ready? Philippians 3. Finally, my brothers, we preachers love that verse because it's only halfway through Paul's letter and he starts summing up. <laughs> so when you hear a preacher say, I'm going to finish with this, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> it's like we're halfway through. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to preach the same things to you again. And it's actually a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision. Welcome visitors, glad you came to church today. <laughs> there is significance in there somewhere, okay? I just can't explain it today. Oh, actually I will, maybe later on. We... Don't worry, I won't give a demo. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who there's like more things coming off this recording. This, this, you know, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus. We rejoice in Christ, and we glory in Christ. Some of your Bibles actually say we boast in Christ. We boast. So boasting can be a good thing. You're just boasting in Christ. That's where we're going today. We glory in Christ and who put no confidence in the flesh. Although, I myself have reasons for such confidence. What we're now going to do is see how Paul explains how there's two groups of people. There's those who put confidence in Jesus and there are those who put confidence in the flesh. Now, he's about to explain what that means. What does it mean to put confidence in Jesus? Well, you worship by the Spirit, you boast in Jesus, okay? I think we've got some kind of understanding all through Paul's letters. He talks about being in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. That is a particular group of people. Then we have a group of people, at least around in his day, that boasted in the flesh. And he's about to explain what that is. If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I can do it as well circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a true blue 
Jew's Jew. Okay? Thoroughbred Jewish Hebrew man, he said, that is what it means to boast in the flesh. It means to boast, firstly, in my pedigree, my family upbringing, my birthright, where I come from. That tribe, that nation, Hebrew of Hebrew, true blue Jews Jew. And then he goes on. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. Thank you very much. As for zeal, I went as far as persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. So we see here Paul explaining confidence in the flesh in two ways. Number one, it's boasting in your pedigree, or his pedigree as a Jewish man. Number two, it was boasting in his performance, his ability to obey the commands of God perfectly. As for legalistic righteousness, did it to a T, thank you very much. I had climbed the hierarchy of my religious community. I was the best you could get. And as for zeal, I went as far as stoning Christian heretics to death. That's how awesome I was at performing the law that was required of me. Verse 7. But, but, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. These things, he said, were to my profit. It's not that I thought they were to my profit and I was wrong. No, no, no. There was a period of time where those things were to my profit. If you're an accountant, you have two ledgers. You have profit, you have... What's the other one? Debit or whatever. Okay, yeah, so you've got this... So these things were in my account and they mattered to me and they mattered to God. But... Those things that were in my profit, I now consider them as loss for the sake of Christ. The word loss, no, no, let's keep reading. (laughs) What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. In fact, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Those of you who grew up in the King James would know that that word rubbish is the word dung. Dung. Imagine if we had an Australian translation, okay? (laughs) What is more, I consider those things done. My pedigree and my performance were to my profit. But now my pedigree and my performance are poo. In light of the surpassing greatness of knowing the person of Christ. In light of how awesome Jesus is, pedigree, which was to my prophet, performance, which was to my prophet, and now poo in light of his glory. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in him. Everyone say, in him. We've seen this a few times now. In Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from observing the law, no, 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 but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness, right standing, basically, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. He finishes by saying, I want to know Christ. I once counted to my prophet my pedigree. I once counted to my prophet my religious performance. But in light of the person of Jesus and in light of my position in Him, my pedigree, my performance, 
mean nothing. All that matters is the person of Jesus. All that matters is that I'm positioned in Christ. That is all that matters. I'm now going to take you through the Bible, the whole thing, buckle in, and explain why it would be that Paul thought his pedigree and his performance actually did matter, which they did. There was a time in history where people's Jewish pedigree and people's Jewish performance mattered to God. And Paul was not deceived to believe that. He was right for that point of history. It was only until meeting Christ, he realised it's poo and I want nothing more but him. All right? I'm now going to walk you through that. And basically the answer to that solution or how we read that is by understanding this thing called covenant. The Bible is best seen, in Chad's opinion, as uh, one of the ways we can see the Bible and understand its big flow is through the lenses of three major covenants that God has offered to people through, uh, throughout history. A covenant is basically a relationship agreement. It's an agreement, terms and conditions, that we have as we relate to one another. It's a covenant. It's a very serious relationship, which is why it often involves the shedding of blood. It's not just a handshake. It means something. Okay? It's really, really important. And everyone who wrote the Bible, all the 40-something authors that contributed to it, understood covenant and lived in a society where covenant mattered to them. So... To understand the Bible well, you really have to have some type of understanding of covenants. There are a number of covenants throughout the Bible, a number of relational agreements, but there are three major ones. And those three major ones are represented by three men. The first is Abraham. These three men are talked about more than any other men in the whole New Testament, as far as historical characters. The first is Abraham. And under the Abrahamic covenant, what qualified people for God's blessing and having a good relationship with God was your pedigree. If you were born in the family of Abraham, you're in God's good books. Then another guy comes along whose name is Moses. And when Moses came along after Sinai, pedigree was known now long, no, not, not enough anymore. What mattered now was your performance to the law, your performance to obey God's commands. Abraham Moses, the third man, is Jesus. When Jesus offers a covenant to us, in light of how flippin' awesome it is, pedigree and performance mean nothing. The only thing that counts in your relationship with God is that you are positioned in the perfect person of Christ Jesus, who fulfills the requirements of the law and who has the perfect pedigree. Because when we are in Him positioned in him no matter how many promises god has made throughout history they are yes in christ and our job is to say amen Amen. abraham moses jesus pedigree performance position three covenants one story are you ready we will God speaks to a man called Abram in Genesis chapter 12. He says, mate, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing to the ends of the earth. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And this relationship is going to be a covenant that I make with you. A few chapters later in chapter 15, Melchizedek comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, the God who is blessing you, or Abram, 
strictly. He said, Abram, the God who is blessing you, his name is El Elyon, God Most High. The God who's speaking to you is actually the God that created the heavens and the earth. He's the greatest God that there is. This is important because Abram was an Iraqi, from Iraq, he's a Chaldean, and he was a polytheist. He worshipped different gods. Okay? That, that was the environment of the world at the time. It was very normal for people to worship different gods. It was really only through Abraham that monotheism, okay, worshipping one god only, it was a weird idea back then, that actually came into being. It was very common to worship multiple gods. Abraham did that. Abraham worshipped multiple gods. And so one day, one of those gods spoke to him and said, I'm going to bless you. Abraham walked with God for three chapters, 12, 13, 14, and God was blessing him and speaking to him. But Abram did not know what God's name was until Melchizedek told him. And that is important because it's there in chapter 15 that it says, Abraham believed God and he was declared righteous. Okay, that means he entered into a right standing relationship with God. He had a relationship with God for three chapters, but he only came into a right standing relationship with God when Melchizedek revealed his name and nature. That is your role as a royal priest. Melchizedek was royalty, king of Salem, king of Jerusalem, and he was priest of God Most High. He was a royal priest. And like you and I, we are royal priests in the New Testament. Our job is to reveal the name and nature of God to people whom God is already loving and God is already leading, they just don't know it yet. Now, Kizadek comes, reveals the name and nature of God and Abram is declared righteous. The very next thing that happens he is God now begins to speak to him again and, and begins by introducing himself. Abraham, this is my name. He didn't do that before. This is my name. This is what I want you to do. In chapter 17, three incredible things happen. He chains, changes Abram's name to Abraham, father of the nations. He gives him a sign of the covenant, okay, which is circumcision. Circumcision, it says, is a sign. It wasn't for God's sake. God didn't need a sign. God wasn't worried about forgetting who Abraham was and needed to mark him in case he accidentally blessed the wrong shepherd. It's not like a tattoo. You guys are all the same. No, it was for Abraham's benefit. It was the same word, sign, that is used about the rainbow. After the flood, a rainbow comes in the, in, in the sky and Noah, Noah is told that rainbow is a sign. It means that you and your kids after you, every time you see it, can look at it and go, I remember. I remember what God promised. It's the same thing with circumcision. Abraham and his sons, which is the third point of chapter 17, were going to be blessed by God and every single day they would see something on their body, permanently there, that would remind them of who they were. I am a son of Abraham. And because I'm a son of Abraham, what God promised my dad, those promises are for me. Because the third thing that happens in Genesis 17 is God says to Abraham, these promises aren't just for you, mate. They are for your kids and your kids, 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 kids. This is for your seed ahead of you. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your kids after you. And I'm not going to bless them on the basis of their behavior. That's why Genesis is a terrible book to read to teach your children morality. Because all the heroes in Genesis are absolute ratbags. Joseph is like a shining example, he's a standout, right? Abram, Isaac and Jacob are liars, they're deceivers, they, they trick, they, they, they're just a terrible bunch of people, morally wise. But God keeps blessing them. 
God keeps protecting them. God keeps looking after them because He's not blessing them on the basis of their obedience or their attitude or their performance. He's blessing them because of their pedigree. You're Abram's kids and I've made a covenant. I've made a deal with your dad. I'm going to bless you regardless of how you behave. That is what we'd call a covenant of undeserved grace. This is what we see then as we head into the book of Exodus. Because in Exodus, when God's people are in slavery in Egypt, they cry out to Him and God says, I've heard the cry of my people. Hundreds of years later now. I've heard the cry of my people. Why are they my people? Because they're Abraham's kids. And He rescued them from the power of Egypt through Moses, you know the story, 10 plagues, Passover, radio, radio, radio. He does that and He tells them why in Deuteronomy. He said, the reason I rescued you is because you're Abraham's kids. I didn't rescue you because you're a great bunch of worshippers. In fact, they used to worship the false gods when they were in Egypt. They used to worship golden calves all the time. It's what you did. While in Rome, live as the Romans do. They were polytheist. They worshipped false gods. God didn't somehow, their worship didn't get his attention. They didn't get God's attention because they were particularly moral. They didn't get God's attention because they were more talented than any other people on the planet. Why did God single out Israel to rescue and show his favour to? He tells them. He says, I rescued you from Egypt because I remembered the covenant I made with your dad, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And because I love them and because I made a commitment to them, that's why I've rescued you. In other words, your pedigree has qualified you for my presence. Your pedigree has qualified you for my presence, my provision and my presence. And so they come out of Egypt. Before they come out of Egypt, you remember, they had the Passover meal. The Passover blood of the lamb, it says there, it uses the same word for sign. Put this blood on your doors, it will be a sign that you are different to the people around you. God did not need to see the blood as if he forgot which ones his people were. God did not need to see it. We know that because when the plague of darkness came, it didn't touch God's people. When the plague of, might have been frogs, I think there's three or four of them, it distinctly says it did not touch the area where God's people lived. God knew who His people were. But He gave them a sign so that, again, like circumcision in the rainbow, they could remember it. They could do something every year, share a meal, and they could remember how incredibly good God was to us when He rescued us from Egypt, not because of our behaviour, not because of our attitude, not because we'd done anything good for Him. He rescued us because He loved our dad, Abram, Isaac and Jacob, and He's faithful to that covenant promise. That's what Passover is. Passover, the blood of Passover, is not the blood of the Old Covenant. Okay, don't, don't think that. The Old Covenant's coming after Sinai, not yet. The Old Covenant um, Passover meal was remembering how good we had it with Abraham, remembering this great deal, I will bless you and I'll curse those who curse you and that's what we see in that story. Which is why when the people come out of Egypt and the first thing they do when they come to the Red Sea is they complain and they whinge and they whine and they blame God for this terrible situation they're in. They don't have a good attitude, they're not grateful, they're murmurers, they're complainers and they're whingers and they're whiners and God's he God hears their whining. And he opens the Red Sea for them. In the next chapter, after they cross chapter 15, they start getting thirsty, as you do when you travel. They whinge, they whine and they complain. Moses taps the rock 
and to, or turns the bitter water sweet in that situation. The next chapter in Exodus, they get hungry. Again, they whinge, they whine and they complain. They don't ask God nicely for food, they whinge. They said, we had it better in Egypt, why did you let us out here? And God graciously hears their complaints and blesses them with food. Every day, fresh manna. And in that situation, he gives them a test while he's doing that. He said, listen, I only want you to collect it six days. Don't go out on the seventh. Do you remember that? He establishes a day of rest. Don't collect it on the seventh. I don't want you to do that, even though it's going to come down. People in that chapter, 17 of Exodus, disobey that command. They go out, they collect manna on the Sabbath day, and God provides food the next day. And provides food the next day. And provides food the next day. He doesn't punish them. He doesn't curse them. He doesn't uh, do anything against them for breaking his instructions. He is not relating to them on the basis of their obedience. He's relating to them because they are Abraham's kids. And that means they're in his good books because of their pedigree. But then things change. In Exodus 19, they come to a mountain called Sinai. God says, Moses, come up here, mate. God and Moses have a chat. He says, I want to speak to the people and I want them for the first time to hear my voice for themselves. Because all this time, Moses has been mediator, prophet for them, relaying God's messages to them. I want them to hear my voice for themselves. So get them ready for that. Moses says, people get ready, God's going to speak. And in Exodus 20, he thunders the Ten Commandments from heaven. I am your God who brought you out of Egypt. Halfway through them, the people freak out, put their hands over their ears and say, we can't take any of this. Moses, you go talk to God on our own. We don't like this. We don't like hearing God for ourselves. That's not what we signed up for. We're happy for you to be the go-between for us. We're about to see a religion established here. Because that's what religion is. You having a one-on-one relationship with God is always God's heart and intention. But the people said, no, we're happy for a mediator, a professional priest to do it for us. Thank you very much. Moses goes up the mountain and God says, listen, if this is the way they're going to be, I'm going to offer you a deal. I will bless you if you obey every command I give you today. But if you disobey my commands, I'm going to curse you instead. Really, God? Is that what you... Yeah, yeah. Go, go, go tell that to me. I will bless them if they obey. But if they disobey, I'm going to curse them, just like I cursed Egypt. Moses comes down the mountain. He says to the people, listen, God's spoken to us. He's giving us an offer here. If we obey, he'll bless us. If he, we disobey, he will curse us. And the people said, that sounds like a good deal. Let's do it. As long as it means that you deal with him. But that sounds like a good deal. Moses goes back to God and says, okay, let's, let's go through with it. So what happens is God gives him instructions. He gives him the law. He comes back down the mountain and he reads the book of the law, not the, not the stone tablets. He reads the book of the law. He reads it out to them. He said, this is the law. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. If you do, God will bless you. If you don't, God will curse you like he did the Egyptians. And the people said, we'll do it. Then he kills an animal. It's a, a big ox or something. There's a few animals there. And he, excuse me, visitors, he takes the blood of the animal And he sprinkles it on the people. And he says, listen, this isn't a little handshake deal. This is an agreement signed in blood, okay? Here's the blood of the covenant. 
Will you obey? And he cites the law to them again. He reads out the thing again. This is the third time now that they've heard him say, if you obey, I'll bless you. If you disobey, I'll curse you. They're splattered with blood and they say, we will obey. There's a biblical principle called let everything be established by two or three witnesses. Okay, two or three. If it's a serious matter, God's going to say it again and again and that's exactly what he's doing as they're splattered with blood. Moses splatters them with blood. The covenant has been entered into. This is the blood of the old covenant. Okay, it's Exodus 24, very key chapter. He splatters them with blood and he says, I'm going to go talk to God now and we're going to seal the whole deal. He goes up, God calls him up the mountain, he goes up with the elders of the community and they have visions of God with a, with a sapphire around his feet and they see visions of him on the throne. Okay, woof, awesome. And then they come back down. And then he says, I'm going to go back up again with you, Josh. So he grabs Joshua and he says, come with me, we're going to go talk to God together. And he grabs Joshua and he goes up the mountain and they wait there halfway for six days. On the seventh day, Moses leaves Joshua behind and goes into the glory cloud for 40 days and 40 nights. Is that too much information for one day? We're going to do the math. He goes up and down the mountain with the old guys. Two days. Goes up with Joshua. That's another seven days. Nine. And then for 40 days and 40 nights, he's there on his own. That means 49 days, seven times seven, seven weeks, 49 days after splattering the blood, he's up on the mountain and God gives him the tablets in his hand. Boom. It is now the 50th day. In Greek, the number 50 is the word pentecom. It is the 50th day. God puts the tablets in Moses' hands and he says, listen, mate, down the mountain, your people, your people are worshipping a golden calf and I'm going to kill them. Moses had no idea that was a typical pastor, no idea what's going on in his own church. He's just he's enjoying the presence of the Lord, you know. So he's up there, he goes, well, hang on, God, you can't do that. You can't kill them. What are you talking about? They're children of Abraham, remember. Literally, he says, they're kids of Abraham. You can't bring them out of Egypt and everyone's going to see how, how terrible a God you are. You can't lead them on. What are you doing? He appeals to the covenant of Abraham. And God says, okay, all right, mate, I won't kill all of them, just 3,000. Moses comes down the mountain. He sees the people worshipping a golden calf. No big deal in their mind. They've done it for hundreds of years. But this time, God has entered into a covenant with them and they promised him they would not do that anymore. They've broken that promise and with no first chance warning given, no grace period to get used to this new arrangement that they have, Moses takes the Ten Commandments, he throws them on the ground, breaks them all, first man to break all Ten Commandments in one go, okay, breaks the Ten Commandments, hashtag pastor's joke, and he breaks the Ten Commandments and he says, listen, those of you who are for the Lord, come to me. And the Levites come to Moses. First in line is his brother, whose name was Aaron, the biggest hypocrite of all of them. Because Aaron was the one that led them into idol worship. Aaron was the one that encouraged them to do it. Moses has taken a long time. Let's uh, do something about this. Let's worship a golden calf. Moses says, what's going on, bro? He goes, oh, you know, we just threw our gold in the fire and abracadabra, it just came out. Can't help it, you know, just sort of happened on its own. Aaron comes up and he says, yeah, mate, we're with you. I'm with you. This is religion really coming to the fore now. Hypocrisy, okay? That people who are willing to judge others for the very thing they do. He says, take a sword. Aaron and his brothers take a sword and they run through the camp and they kill 
with the sword, 3,000 of their own cousins, their own brothers, their own sisters, their aunties, their uncles and children. They run them through with the sword. They come back to Moses. They are covered in blood. Their swords have got hair and and flesh attached to them. They say, listen, Moses, we did what you said. We killed 3,000 of our brothers today. And God looks at Aaron and his brothers with blood all over them and says, you guys are going to make great priests. So I'm going to choose you to represent this arrangement. You're going to become the Levitical priests. You're willing to shed blood. You're willing to blame other people and condemn other people for the very same thing you did. Oh, that's great. That's religion. We can use that. You guys will be my priests. They show great passion that day. That's at least one angle. You may not agree with that. It's the most funny angle, so I'm going to go with it. This is where they enter into a priesthood arrangement. Moses goes back up the mountain, gets new stone tablets. They build a tabernacle that they can worship with God and a whole bunch of prescriptions where blood is required to alleviate God's wrath when they sin because now God was watching every step that they make. After about a year at Mount Sinai, the tabernacle's finished, the glory cloud comes upon it, the trumpets are blown, in the book of Numbers, they march on toward the promised land. Numbers 11. Within three days of starting that journey, these people who have not changed one bit begin to whinge and whine and complain about their situation. And because they complained in Numbers 11, God sent a plague. No, he didn't. God sent fire from heaven and he burned a bunch of them alive. Later on in that chapter, Miriam murmurs behind the scenes against Moses, her brother, her pastor. Just thought I'd throw that in. It's what insecure pastors do. Um, Miriam murmurs against Moses and it says there in Numbers 11 that God spat in her face and she got leprosy. In the next chapter, Moses sends 12 spies into Canaan. Two of them come back with a good report, but 10 of them come back with a bad report. And the guys that come back with a bad report, God says, kill them. In the next chapter, there's Numbers 15, there's a guy called Korah. No, there's not. In Numbers 15, there's another guy, we don't know his name, and he's found picking up sticks on the Saturday. That's a big deal, isn't it? Picking up sticks on the Sabbath. The people bring him to Moses and they say, what should we do with this guy? He's picking up sticks. What should we do? Picking up firewood for his family. Moses said, I'm not too sure. I'll go ask God. He goes ask God and God says, you know what you should do? Kill him. Next chapter is number 16, and there's a guy called Korah, and he doesn't like what's going on, so he incites 250 fellow community leaders to grumble and complain against Moses. Because they grumbled against Moses, God opens up the ground, swallows them alive, and burns them to death. As a result of that, the rest of the community start freaking out, okay? And they come to Moses and they say, Moses, what the heck have you done to us? This is your fault. You should never have let us come out of Egypt. We're going back. And that day, number 16, because they blamed Moses for all that was happening, God sent another plague and 14,700 of them died in one day because they blamed Moses for what was happening. Which begs the question, what is God's problem? Does God have a multiple personality 
problem? Does he have a real hormone issue? <laughs> because I want to tell you, he's acting and behaving very differently to what he did a couple of months ago. On this side of the mountain, God's people whinged and complained, and he blessed them. But over here, they whinge and complain, and he curses them. Over here, they break the Sabbath, remember the whole manna situation, and God just keeps giving them food. Over here, they break the Sabbath, and God says, kill them. Over here, they worship false gods, and God rescues them from Egypt. Gives them gold and silver and healing. And they were worshipping false gods when they did that. Over here, they worship false gods, and God kills 3,000 of them in a day. Over here, they complain against Moses. They grumble, they whinge, they whine, they blame him for what's happening. And even though it upsets Moses, there's no indication it upset God. God continued to bless them and lead them. But over here, when they complain against Moses, God spits in their face, opens the ground, swallows them alive and burns them to death. Has God changed? I, the Lord, do not change. God has not changed. The people have not changed. They're exactly the same. It's just a few months later. Behaving exactly the same. The only thing that changed was the relationship, the relational agreement that they came under. They said yes three times to a deal that turned out to be a real crappy deal. Okay? Where God said, yes, I'll continue to bless you, but only if you obey first. And by the way, if you don't obey, I'm going to curse you. I'm going to become your enemy and you will be considered my enemy. I'll be out to get you. What do you think? Yes, God, sounds awesome. Let's do it. This is what we call self-righteous pride. The willingness to base my relationship with God on how good I am. Rather than what Abraham had, which is trusting in how good God was. Not how good I am. My faith is in how good you are and you've promised to bless me and I admit I don't deserve it. We have Passover, we remember we didn't deserve it. How good was God when he rescued us? Now we're basing our relationship with God on how good we are. And this thing is called the Moses Covenant, the, what we call the Old Covenant, because we've got a new one, we're coming up to that in a minute. It's a law-based agreement where no longer was pedigree enough. It was pedigree plus performance that qualified people for God's blessing. And it is this era that most of your Bible is occupied with. Okay? Because here, this period is basically Genesis, first few chapters of Exodus, here is a period of 1,400 years from Exodus on where God's people, as you read, those of you reading with me on YouTube this year and last year, you'll see they have an up and down relationship with God hundreds and hundreds of years. When they do well, God blesses them. When they do poorly, God curses them. When they've got a good king, God blesses them. When they've got a terrible king, God curses them. And the story of this thing, God, they ask for a king. When they have a good judge, God blesses them. When they don't, everything turns to poo. Then they have a kingdom. Then they've got a good king. Everything's going well. Then the kingdom splits and everything turns to poo. And they've got a bad king and a good king and a bad king and a bad king and a bad king and a good king and a bad king and a bad king and a bad king. Don't check me on that. Don't fact check that. I'm not sure it's exactly right. 
Until eventually God says to this group at least, He said, listen, I'm going to hand you over to death, devastation, doom, destruction, defeat and ultimately divorce. I'm no longer going to be in a covenant relationship with you. Jeremiah 3, I've written you a certificate of divorce and I send you away. He uses the same language that he used with Adam and Eve when he said, I thrust them from my presence. So he says to Israel, I thrust you from my presence. Why? Because this relational agreement they had was dependent on how good they were. They never, never could sustain that. And the relational agreement, while it grieved God's heart, because he never wanted this, Yes, he needed to give God's people a law because they were a new nation. So they needed a way to govern themselves. But that law <clears throat> became a relational covenant that, depend, that, that described their relationship. He never wanted that. And we know that because in the New Testament, he said, or no, in the Psalms, he says, I don't delight in burnt sacrifices and offerings and blood. This stuff doesn't flick my switch. This stuff doesn't turn. This is not what I wanted. For 1,400 years, they have this relationship, living under the burdensome weight of that law. A weight, Paul says, and Jesus says, that our forefathers could never bear. It was destined to fail. Which is why it was destined to come to an end. Because one day, angels come. And angels say, I bring you good news of great joy. For all these people, there is, one, there is today a saviour being born from you. He is Emmanuel, he is the Prince of Peace, and he has come to save people from the curse of sin. Jesus walks the earth for 30 years, demonstrating the name and nature of our Father. Like Melchizedek, he shows us what God is like. He is not a priest like Levi, but exposed people and condemn them for the very same error he had no he was sinless he was perfect like Melchizedek he announced the goodness of the glory of God John the baptizer his cousin sees him at the river one day and he says right there is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world these lambs in the old covenant were nowhere near that powerful they just alleviated God's judgment until the next time you did something wrong and the next time you did something wrong, and now you're guilty again, now you're wrong again, now you're sinful again, because there's always sin held against you. But Jesus comes, and he doesn't just lift God's wrath until next time you do something wrong. He is the lamb that takes away sin from your account permanently. He takes away sin. John the baptizer also said, he is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Just as John was baptizing people in the river, and people were covered from head to toe in water, coming out of their nose, coming out of their ears, saturating them with water. He said, do you see what's happening to these people? Jesus is going to do this with the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus is going to do for you. And so he begins his miracle ministry. He teaches, he preaches, he reveals the nature of God until he has a meal, a lamb roast with his mates one night. And at that meal, he says, take this cup. Because this cup is the blood of a new covenant. Hey, you have had covenants before. We've had the covenant of, Mo of Abraham. We've had a covenant of Moses. But today I announce a new covenant in my blood. A new relational agreement is about to be established. And they were clueless as to what he meant. 
Until later that night, he's hanging, or next day, he's hanging on a, on a cross. And there are seven famous things Jesus said as he hung there. But one of my favorites is he announced these three words. He says, it is finished. The moment he did that, he, it explains what was finished. Because Jesus' work wasn't finished. The Bible wasn't finished. Human history wasn't finished. What was finished, Jesus, when you said those words? In the temple, there was a curtain. And from top to bottom, it ripped heaven to earth. The moment he said those words, it is finished. It signified the end of this old covenant system, this old covenant era where God promised to bless people on the basis of their performance. Jesus comes, perfectly performs on our behalf and says that thing is coming to an end. It is done. And so the book of Hebrews says it is redundant and it is obsolete. It has reached its end. It lasted 1,400 years. That is the age that Ishmael was when he was expelled from Abraham's house. 14, not 1,400 years. He was 14. Yeah? Abraham forced his way into having a son that wasn't a son. It was just a child. It wasn't an heir. And after Isaac came, the child of the promise, at 14 years of age, after Isaac was weaned, Ishmael was sent away out of the house. Why? You've had your go, mate, but you're not any, have anything to do with me anymore, says Father Abraham. In the same way, this covenant system lasts for 14 years. And God said, it was good for its time. It served its purpose, but it was never going to be everlasting. That's what Galatians is about. It said, this, this, this is, has no future inheritance, these people, this group of people. This covenant system was never meant to last because I'm replacing it with something vastly superior. This new covenant that we have, as you read the pages of the New Testament, gives us a whole bunch of wonderful promises. And those promises are yes, because we are in Christ. It is not a covenant based upon our pedigree. It is not a covenant. It doesn't matter what family, religious background that you have, whether you've got Jewish roots or anything like that, poo. It is nothing to do with your pedigree. It is nothing to do with your performance. You have a right standing relationship with God because of the perfect person of Jesus and the fact that by faith you are positioned in Him. And that is where we boast. That is where we rejoice. That is where we delight. And that is the gospel. Because Jesus has the perfect pedigree. He is the Son of God himself. And he's not only that, but he's the son of Abraham. Paul brings this up in Galatians. He says, gee, you know, I think we've had this wrong all these years. We always thought that God said, I was going to bless Abraham and his seeds. I mean, that's what Chad said like 10 minutes ago. I'll bless your seeds. But that's not what the Bible actually says. It actually said, I'll bless your seed. Singular. So it wasn't ultimately a promise to bless Abraham's earthly kids, sand on the seashore. It's a promise to bless his heavenly kids, stars in the sky. It's a promise to bless the seed, and that seed is Jesus. Which means that whatever God promised Abraham, Jesus qualifies for those blessings. And if I am positioned in Jesus, then I qualify for those blessings as well. So I can read the blessings of Abraham, and I can say, well, I'm not Jewish. I can't prove my ancestry to Abraham. 
doesn't matter. You're in Jesus. Jesus qualifies. You're in him. Those promises are yours. Jesus also has the perfect performance. Perfect pedigree, perfect performance. He perfectly obeyed every jot and tittle of the law. He was sinless. He was perfect. He fulfilled. He satisfied the requirements of the law, even all the curses. What do you think the cross was about? He satisfied the curses of the law. And if we are in him, having satisfied the curses of the law, the blessings are his inheritance, and we are in Christ, we qualify for the old covenant blessings as well. So you can read Deuteronomy 28. You can read all the promises of being blessed in the country, blessed in the city, blessed in your coming, blessed in your going, blessed in the, the fruit of your womb and the wines and your vats and all that sort of stuff. And, you can, and though it starts by saying, if you obey, you can go, well, Jesus obeyed. Jesus qualified for them and I'm in Him. I'm not changing the Scripture. It's always going to say, if you obey. But I understand the people who it was said to in that context have to obey. I don't have to perfectly obey Torah because Jesus did on my behalf. And I am in Him. My pedigree, my performance mean poo. All that matters is my position in the person of Jesus Christ. Three covenants. Jesus qualifies for God's blessings. And so do you when you are positioned in Him. And that's like a legal term. I mean, you're in Christ, okay? And uh, you have to really read the New Testament to, to work that out. Does that kind of make sense? Have I really explained that? And here we see a beautiful progression of identity. Because as Galatians 3 and 4 says, when we were under the law, we were like children that had to have a nanny to tell us what to do all the time. Don't be bad, don't be bad, don't be bad, just be good. Smacked us on the hand when we did something wrong. And he said, as children, we were kind of like slaves. We couldn't inherit anything, even though our dad owned the business. Hopefully not too much for one day. Here's the idea. God's people, when God treated them, blessed them because of their pedigree, you might think, well, that's a bit irresponsible. That's a bit irresponsible, really, letting them get away with stuff like that and misrepresenting him so badly. But listen, God was treating them like you'd treat a baby. And you've got a baby, and they whinge, and they whine, and they complain, and they get you up at 2 o'clock, and they don't do what you tell them to do. They don't follow your instructions. They make you look bad in the supermarket, or look bad at the rest of the day. Don't, you know, this is, what is this kid doing? You don't punish them. A good parent doesn't punish an infant. You understand, I love, I feed, I nurture, I care, because they're just a baby. Under Abraham, that's basically how God treated his people, like babies. Under Moses, he says in Galatians, we were like children. God disciplined us, told us when we were do awarded us when we were doing right, punished us when we were doing naughty. And like kids, while our dad owned the business, we didn't really have any authority. We couldn't really do much. But now, he says in Galatians, we're not children anymore. In Christ, we're sons. We are adults. Yeah. And as adults, we have the full rights to enjoy our Father's blessing. But we also have a great responsibility. And He's empowered us and equipped us with responsibility to represent our dad well. Yeah. And to advance the Father's business. To get on with the family business. And so there's not irresponsibility in a true understanding of the gospel. 
Because a true understanding of the gospel shapes our identity and tells us who we are in Christ. And the most natural and normal thing for a son to do. I'm not worried about his wrath. I'm not worried about his judgment. I'm not worried about God being angry with me. Which God am I going to get today? Am I going to get the Abraham God? <laughs> or am I going to get the Moses God? You know, which one? No, I don't have to worry about any of that. I'm secure in Christ. I know my dad loves me. And I move on from that basis and understanding I'm called and commissioned to represent him on planet earth. And I'm going to do that as best as I can as he empowers me because I'm his son. I've got his DNA and I'm going to get on with the family business. I'm a son. I'm not a baby. I'm not a child. I'm a grown man, a grown woman who takes responsibility with my dad. So identity is key. That's one way to read the Bible. <laughs> I do have another one based on seven. This is three covenants. I've got another one based on seven governments. But that's too much for today. <laughs> You'll have to watch me on YouTube or to find out what they are. All God's promises, no matter how many is made, are yes in Christ. And understanding the form and flow of the biblical story, it is a beautiful thing. It's complex, it's detailed, it weaves in and out. But amongst all the diversity of the scripture, there is great unity. It is telling the one progressive story. I hope you have a greater understanding of that today. And I hope that you are confident today in your position in Christ. If you don't know him today, you can. And for those of us who do know him today, you can know him more. Because Paul, the greatest contributor to the New Testament, one of the greatest Christians ever to have walked the planet, okay? Hero. Paul said in those opening verses, I once put my confidence in my pedigree. I once put my confidence in my performance. I had reason to boast in the flesh. But now all I do is boast in Jesus. Those things are poo. All that matters to me is that I am positioned in him. And have a righteousness that is not of my own, but comes through simply believing in Jesus. And he says, in fact, I want to know Jesus. What do you mean you want to know Jesus? Paul, <laughs> you're writing the Bible, dude. Don't you know him? Yeah, but I want to know him. I know him, but I want to know him. And whether you've never met him, or whether you've walked with him for years. Maybe you have walked in with him for years and you still haven't met him. Maybe you're like Abram, who walked with God and God was talking to you. God was, God's blessing you. God's actually leading you in life, but you actually haven't acknowledged who it is. Many of us have that testimony where we come to Jesus, quote, and we look over our shoulder and go, oh yeah, he's actually been with me a long time. <laughs> That was actually him back there and back there and back there and back there. That was him. I just didn't know it until now. Maybe today's the day you can acknowledge that for the first time. You go, God, I acknowledge today your reality. And I acknowledge today you've been with me all this time. And I want to enter into a right relationship with you where we can talk openly, freely, and uninhibited. If that's you today, I'd really love to pray with you and to basically introduce you to Jesus. I can pretty well see everyone here. 
So if that's you, I would like to talk with you afterwards. Can you just show me your hand and I'll, I'll come up to you later and we can chat. So yeah, I've never met him and I'd love to, for you to pray with me, Chad. Let's do it. So anyone? Give you three seconds, okay? Three, two, one. Beautiful. The rest of us are probably a bit over here then. Well, hopefully not here. If you're living in this mindset or mentality, snap out of it because you don't belong there. This system doesn't exist anymore. It, it's obsolete and aging and it's disappeared as far as God's concerned. What the heck are you doing? It's like you're trying to use an analog TV. It's just not connecting. Trying to use an old analog brick phone. It's like, dude, we, we, you dealt, we dealt with that years ago. But you can still think like this. You can still think God's out to get me. I haven't obeyed enough this week. I've disobeyed this week. God's going to curse me if I do wrong. I need to earn his blessing and favor. God didn't put you here. Maybe religion did. Maybe priests with bloody garments did. Just nudge over here a little bit. Come this side of the cross in your head and rejoice in the Lord. And don't just rejoice in who he is and what he's done in the past. But rejoice and reach out for him more into the future. Say like I say, Lord, I know you, but I want to know you more. Does that resound with any of you? Today, I want you to stand to your feet. And that makes you feel like I'm finishing. Finally, my brothers. <laughs> let me just sum up by saying this. Why don't you guys, why don't you guys come and help us with... Uh, <laughs> if you know the person next to you well enough you feel comfortable you've got a spare hand why don't you take their hand if you've got a spare hand a spare hug holy Lord thank you so much for this incredible person that you died for this person you died for them that they may enter into a relationship with you that is fruitful and flourishing and that lasts forever I thank you that the person of Jesus makes it possible for all people to participate in your presence and to participate in your provision both now and for all eternity and I pray for this special, sacred person next to me, that they would know you more and more and more and more. Take them deeper. Take them deeper into that river of love. Take them deeper into their knowledge and understanding of you. Take them deeper and deeper into your purposes for them, Lord God. Take them deeper into your presence. Take them deeper into truth. Take them deeper in their experiences. Take them deeper. Take them further. Take them wider. Holy Spirit, take a hold of this person and baptize them today. Top of their head, soles of their feet. Bless them. Bless them. In Jesus' name. Yes. 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 Amen.